Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. We are speaking with Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute, about the Second Amendment. You know, people often argue that uh, that the weapons that are available today were not available at the time the Constitution was written, and so they use that as an excuse to say we should be able to ban anything except flintlock rifles and pistols. How do you, how do you counter an argument like that? Well, it's uh, it's analogous to the following. Um, we have a First Amendment protecting against free, protecting our right to free speech. <clears throat> Does anybody believe that the First Amendment doesn't extend to the Internet? Assuredly, they don't. I mean, the Internet is an obvious means by which we exercise our free speech. The framers could not have imagined that we have anything resembling an Internet at the time of the framing. So it is always permissible to examine the trajectory of the words that are in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and apply those words to current circumstances. What is not permissible is to treat the words as if they meant something opposite to which, different than they meant at the time of the framing. So when we talk about free speech, we necessarily include variations on the means by which we exercise free speech. Now it includes the Internet, of course. And when we talk about the right to bear arms, arms at the time may have included certain types of weapons. But the use of the term arms certainly was not meant to foreclose later types of arms uh, that would be developed and that exist today. Uh, So the Constitution, because the framers were geniuses, is a statement of principles. It's a statement of abstractions. It's a statement which can be extended to apply to existing circumstances. That doesn't mean that it's this living, flexible, uh, manipulative document that can be interpreted to mean something quite contrary to what it did at the time. But it certainly can be applied to modern circumstances, technical changes, scientific changes, cultural changes, and the like. I think all of this has to be viewed through the prism of history, uh, as I know you do as well. And can you imagine if... The only weapons are the Minutemen and, and the like had were slingshots and uh, slingshots and, and rocks. Oh, there never would have been a successful American war of independence because the British obviously uh, were much better armed. So when Jefferson says his comments about the Tree of Liberty, he envisioned, I'm sure, 
that the citizens would always be somewhat at least on par uh, with the government in order to maintain that the the freedom of the individual and to be able to prevent a tyrannical government from rising up. Indeed. You know, in addition, uh, from a historical per- perspective, uh, the shot heard around the world on Lexington Green all, all occurred because the British were going to confiscate the guns of the colonists. Was it not true? Yes, that's correct. And, uh, of course, the, the concern of the um, Americans was that the means by which, they, by which they would resist tyranny would be denied to them. And that was a sufficient cause to justify a revolution. It wasn't the only cause, but it certainly was one of the causes, the paramount causes, in justification of the revolution. So you were involved in the Heller case, the Heller case in Washington, D.C. Uh, let's discuss that case. What was it about, and uh, what were the arguments that you used to be successful? Uh, it was a straightforward constitutional challenge to the draconian uh, gun control laws in D.C. Um, we filed the case in 2003, myself and two other uh, lawyers, on behalf of uh, six law-abiding D.C. residents who wanted to possess functional firearms uh, to defend themselves uh, where they lived and, and slept. So Heller wasn't about um, machine guns or so-called assault weapons. Uh, it was about the right to own ordinary uh, garden variety handguns. And the Heller plaintiffs didn't ask uh, for the right to carry the gun outside the home. It's not that that wasn't uh, a critical issue, but it wasn't an issue that was addressed in that case. The Heller litigation was very simple. It was about a handgun in the home for self-defense. And off and on over the years, um, D.C. had reclaimed its title, uh, not just the nation's capital, uh, but the nation's uh, murder capital. Uh, so the government uh, there had had uh, done a terrible job at protecting its uh, citizens against the violent uh, criminals, but had done a really good job of disarming uh, decent and peaceable residents of D.C. No handgun could be registered in D.C., even pistols that were possessed uh, prior to the 1976 ban. So we're talking about 42 years ago. Uh, even those pistols, you could keep them, but they couldn't be carried from room to room in the home without a license. And D.C. hadn't granted a license in more than three decades. And if you had a rifle or a shotgun, you could keep that as well. But it had to be unloaded and either disassembled or bound by a trigger lock. So, in effect, unless you plan to club somebody over the head uh, with your rifle, nobody in the district uh, could possess a functional firearm in his or her uh, own uh, residents. And those were the laws that we challenged, and ultimately those laws were declared invalid and unconstitutional. So in essence, the Heller case was about your ability to possess a loaded gun uh, inside your home, and it did not talk about going outside the home, which obviously is for uh, self-protection in case of a home invasion. What about the McDonald case? See, the Heller case was in D.C., and it was in D.C. Um, for a an important uh, reason. Uh, originally, when the Bill of Rights was ratified, 1791, it applied only to the federal government. You'll notice that the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. 
It doesn't say anything about states making uh, laws. So theoretically, uh, the state of you know, North Carolina could have passed a law that said you can't criticize the governor. And that would not have violated the First Amendment right to free speech because the First Amendment didn't apply to North Carolina. Now, it may have violated the North Carolina Constitution or some laws in North Carolina, but it would not have violated uh, the North, the, uh, the federal Constitution. Now, sadly, we found out that these states, given that leeway, <laughs> to, they could be just as tyrannical as the federal government, slavery being the obvious uh, case in point. And so we had to fight a civil war about that, and we passed uh, several amendments after the Civil War to the Constitution. And among those amendments was the 14th. And the 14th was used to apply the Bill of Rights, the technical term is incorporate the Bill of Rights, so that the Bill of Rights um, would apply uh, to the states as well as to the federal government. This application or incorporation of the Bill of Rights, it didn't happen in one fell swoop. After the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, there was a whole series of cases, litigations that came up to the Supreme Court. And they addressed the Bill of Rights provision by provision. So there'd be a case about free speech, and then about free exercise of religion, and then about protection against unreasonable searches, and on and on and on. And interestingly, and almost uh, inexplicably, until 2010, two years after the Heller case, the Supreme Court had never addressed the question as to whether the Second Amendment would be incorporated and would apply to these states. We didn't want to have to address that in the Heller case. That's why we brought the case in D.C., because it's a federal jurisdiction controlled by Congress, not subject to state laws. But after Heller was resolved, then we had to find out, as part two of this uh, Second Amendment litigation, part one being, what does the Second Amendment mean? Part two, where does the Second Amendment apply? Does it apply to the states? And that's what the McDonald case addressed. Would the Second Amendment be incorporated? And the McDonald, the McDonald versus Chicago case decided in 2010 that, like just about all of the provisions in the Bill of Rights, the Second Amendment as well would be incorporated and would apply not just to federal jurisdictions like D.C. and Guam and Samoa and the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, but also to every state and locality uh, in the United States. That was the conclusion of the McDonald case. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum on News Talk 95.1. We'll be right back after a quick break. We are continuing our discussion with Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute, about the Second Amendment. So we had two really landmark uh, decisions, uh, the Heller and the McDonald decision. Yes. And so after those two, and, and I understand now that that, why the, what the importance is of those decisions, one in federal jurisdiction and one in state jurisdictions. So after those two decisions, what does that mean for gun rights in the United States? Well, here's the impact of uh, those two decisions taken together. First, we know that the Second Amendment ensures a, by the way, notice I said 
ensures, it doesn't grant. <laughs> the right existed before the Constitution was written and before the, the, the U.S. government was even formed. A right to self-defense is among our natural rights. So the Constitution secures that right, guarantees that right. It doesn't grant that right. So now we know from the Heller case that the Second Amendment secures an individual right that may be exercised in the context of militia service, but it need not be exercised in the context of militia service. It is an individual right each and every one of us has. It's not a right of the states to arm their militias. It's not simply a right of you or me to serve in a militia and bear arms in that context. It is that, but it's more than that. It's the right that uh, we have to self-defense, among other things. So that's what the Second Amendment means. And we know from the McDonald case that the Second Amendment uh, applies uh, everywhere. Interestingly, the uh, criterion for whether or not the Second Amendment would be incorporated, that it would be applied to the states, is whether or not the Supreme Court deemed the right to be fundamental. And that's a term of art in constitutional law. If a right is declared to be fundamental, it means either it's implicit in the concept of ordered liberty or it's deeply rooted in our nation's culture and tradition. The Supreme Court in both Heller and McDonald declared that the Second Amendment right is fundamental. Now, what does that mean? It means that government has the burden to justify any compromises of that right. It doesn't mean that the right's absolute. It doesn't mean that it's not subject to some reasonable regulation. But it does mean that if the government proposes to regulate our right to keep and bear arms, the burden is on government to show three things. First, there's a compelling need to regulate. Second, that the proposed regulation is going to be effective. That is to say, it will accomplish the ends that are sought. And third, that there's no other means of accomplishing those same ends without transgressing uh, Second Amendment rights. So it's no longer after the Heller and McDonald case. It's no longer up to me that I show to, to show that I have a need to to have a gun. It's up to government to show that it has a compelling reason uh, to uh, regulate my access uh, to having a gun. That's a whole different context than litigation, and that's the real contribution of the Heller and McDonald cases. So now we move on to phase three. Again, phase one being what does the Second Amendment mean? Phase two, where does the Second Amendment apply? Now phase three, what's the scope of the right? Given that we have an individual right, given that it applies everywhere in the United States, what regulations of that right will still be permissible? We know that the right isn't absolute. No one is suggesting that an 11-year-old can carry an automatic weapon in front of the White House when the, when the president is delivering a speech. So there are some weapons, there are some people, and there are some circumstances uh, that will be subject to regulation. And that's what the litigation that is now underway has to flesh out. And importantly, it is the government's burden to justify its proposals to regulate the right. What litigation is underway that addresses those really critical issues? Well, we have uh, all sorts of proposals that are floating about, some of which are being litigated in the various states. So, for example, there's the right to concealed carry. There's the right to open carry. There's the right to reciprocal carry. Um, that is to say, if you comply with the right of, with the uh, obligations for concealed carry in one state, should you be entitled to carry 
in all states. Uh, there's the right to have unlimited uh, access to magazines of any capacity. Uh, there's the right to engage in purchasing guns at a gun show without uh, subjecting yourself to a background check. Uh, there's the right to buy rifles at the age of uh, 18, which now the state of Florida has, uh, uh, is attempting to limit so that you have to be 21 to get a rifle. So there are all of these things that are being uh, litigated across the country, and we're finding that the courts are uh, um, they're a bit puzzled by this because, unfortunately, in the Heller and McDonald case, the Supreme Court did not lay down a bright uh, line that we would know that each and every case would fall on one side of the line or the other. So there's some ambiguity at the margin, and that gives these courts some wiggle room and we're getting different decisions in different jurisdictions, and that means ultimately uh, the higher courts are going to have to step in and resolve these uh, jurisdictional uh, differences. We already have a key difference that I would guess that the Supreme Court will have to resolve, and that is whether or not uh, the states can impose uh, very onerous restrictions on access to concealed carry permits. Uh, some states say, uh, states say uh, no, this has to be a matter of right, and uh, um, all you have to do is meet certain qualifications regarding age and uh, proficiency, and, and then there's no bureaucratic discretion. Other states say, no, the bureaucrats can take a close look at this and try to determine whether or not you really have a need uh, for concealed carry. And, of course, the Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in and decide which of these, uh, uh, which of these rules will prevail. You know, this is a, a really kind of an interesting subject for me because is it not true that in the Constitution there's a clause that says that the rights granted to individuals of one state are valid in all states? And, for instance, I don't have to get a driver's license in every state that I travel through. And yet here we have, for instance, over-the-road truck drivers who uh, really need to have a weapon uh just for their self-protection, who are in a circumstance where, depending on where they go, they may or be may be illegal or legal, uh, depending what state they're in. Why does that is that not one of those rights or uh, whatever you want to call it that is not universal as the Constitution says? Well, it's a it's a really tough subject uh, constitutionally because there are some rights that are. Um, um, consistent across state lines, and there are other rights, uh, for example, minimum wage laws. Uh, minimum wage laws vary from state to state. So there are, there are all kinds of uh, uh, alcohol laws vary uh, from state to state. Um, there are all, all kinds of uh, um, uh, provisions in state laws and state constitutions that may vary from time to time. The argument by the gun controllers, and frankly, I think it has, it has some... Uh, um, weight that should be given to it is that the the rules for let's say concealed carry uh, should not be the same or need not be the same in downtown chicago as they are in the hills of montana so just because uh, you comply with the uh, requirements to have a concealed carry permit in the in the uh, rural areas of uh, montana doesn't mean it should be able to uh, to carry in downtown chicago so you know it gets into these uh, conflicting principles in the Constitution. One says that uh, uh, that we do have a inherent right to uh, carry arms to defend ourselves. The other says that we have a, a federalist system where states can um, make the rules that uh, uh, s such that if the citizen.
behind federalism is that we have this divided power. We have this dual sovereignty such that each jurisdiction serves as a check and balance against the other. It's a tough uh, situation to resolve in every case. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Yeah, when I play the hoochie-coochie man, I get joy in everything. Everything gonna be all right this morning.